God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an opportunity to contemplate wisdom and to live skillfully in this world. Uh, God, would you guide uh, my words and our hearts today that we might live wisely? Lord, I pray that you would speak through me or in spite of me, but you would speak to every single person here and listening online. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Proverbs 9, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Kind of a a thesis statement, or as Mike read at the beginning of the service, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We're in the midst of this three-week little mini-series, in the midst of this big, long thread series going through the whole Bible, but these three weeks looking at the books of wisdom, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the book of Job. Last week, we looked at the oldest of these books, Job, and how it cautions us to not view the world too simply. There are complexities to God and why things happen that we can't even begin to understand Especially in regard to suffering and pain, we need to be very careful to draw two solid of lines from one to the other. But the book of Proverbs doesn't deal mostly in the complexities or the exceptions to the rule. It gives us general principles on how to live wisely or rightly or skillfully in life, which is something we all need, right? Now, one of the things that I've beaten to your heads continually as we've gone through this thread series is that the the Bible is not primarily a spiritual encyclopedia filled with random spiritual truths about every topic known to man. The Bible is an overarching story that hits its climax in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, a story that follows this arc, creation, fall, futility, redemption, and restoration. It begins with God creating mankind in a garden and dwelling with him there. It ends with with mankind in a garden, inside a city, once again dwelling with their God. And in the middle is what went wrong and how things are restored and made to be right. Now you got that? We've mentioned that over and over again, 66 different books written by over 40 different authors over the course of about 1,500 years telling that overarching story. Now, as we look at the book of Proverbs, it very much functions like a spiritual encyclopedia that gives wisdom on a variety of topics for life. So the way that most of you or a lot of you look at the Bible is actually the way that we are supposed to read the book of Proverbs. Things about life and work and sex and friendship and marriage and money and speech and work ethic and honesty and anger and parenting and that's just to name a few topics that the book of Proverbs cover. It answers the question, how do I live skillfully in this world? How do I do life well? And don't we all need a little bit more wisdom in our lives these days? But you could say all days. And wouldn't it be a way if the, wouldn't it be great if there was a way that this wisdom could be captured into pithy and memorable phrases that were easy for us to recall? Well, that, my friends, is the book of Proverbs. 
And so for the rest of our time, I don't want to just talk about Proverbs in general. I want to dive into a small section. So if you would open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, you can open your paper Bibles. It'll be up here on the screen, or you can even tap along on your mobile device. We're going to look at one of the 10 speeches in the first nine chapters of Proverbs given from father to son on how to live wisely and pursue this life of wisdom. It hits on the essence of what a wise life is, which is this. Trust in God's wisdom and his word more than your own intellect and understanding and intuition. Let's read. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck, write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth. And with the first fruits of all your produce, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Uh, this is God's word. Now, if you're to look in your paper Bibles, often the printers or the translators give us a little help in understanding how these Proverbs fit together. Well, it's not part of the original writing. It does give us a guide or some tips on which verses go together. Do you see how in your paper Bible there are small spaces between verses 2 and 3, or three or 4 and 5, and again in between verses 8 and 9 and, and verses 10 and 11? They are essentially saying these are the natural breaks or the ways that they're talking together. They're coupled or they're linked together so that verses 1 to 2 is the first section and verses 3 to 4 is the second. And then in the middle, verses 5 to 8 is kind of the main heart of this particular address. And then verses 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 go together. It's amazing how there's so much in our Bibles, isn't there, that aid us and help us in understanding. So let's look at each of these sections and see how to read and understand them that we might grow in wisdom. Does that sound good? All right, verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. One of the best ways to understand the Proverbs is to paraphrase them in your own words. To say in, in common vernacular what you think it's saying. So here's how I would read it. Son, don't forget my teaching. Obey it from the heart and you will have a long and peaceful life. See, this brings up a really important principle on how we are to interpret the Proverbs. See, Proverbs are filled with general principles, not necessarily promises. It isn't a guarantee that if I do this, then this will happen, but rather general principles of wisdom of if this, then this. That's very important, say, in train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from you. That's not a promise as much as it is a general principle on good parenting and training them at a young age. Do you see how if we turn principles into promises, we can end pretty disillusioned with God? 
feeling like he's lied to us, feeling like he hasn't been faithful. That's why it's important that we interpret these rightly as general principles, not promises or rules. So it means, generally, if I remember God's teaching and I obey God's teaching from the heart, generally life goes better for me. It leads me into peace and it increases my chance of not having an early demise. That's often how it happens, isn't it? And yet not always. There are lots of great people who die young through no fault of their own. But in general, those who listen to the Lord's instruction live happy and fulfilling lives. Do you see how that works? So if I want to live skillfully, I should remember and obey the Lord's teaching and obey it from the heart. Let's keep going. Verse 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Do not let steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Now, these things, steadfast love and faithfulness, are not just vague ideas. They are the very character of God revealed to his people. If you were to go back to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, when God speaks his name or declares the essence of his being to Moses, this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in what? Steadfast love and faithfulness. That should ring some bells in our mind, right? So when the proverb writer says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you, he is talking about God himself. He's saying, let not God forsake you. Well, God wouldn't forsake us, so what exactly is he saying? Well, if we flip it, it means trust in Yahweh. Trust in God. He will not forsake you. Trust in his steadfast love and his faithfulness to you. Bind them around your neck and write them on the tablet of your heart. I think this is an allusion to the command, the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. And then in the Shema, they were to write these laws on, on everyday things that would remind them all the time of these commandments of the Lord. Sounds an awful lot like a wise way to live, doesn't it? If you do this, says the proverb, you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. So, trust God, remember him, know who he is, keep his commandments and his character constantly in front of you, and you will find success not only with God vertically, but horizontally with other people. This is the way of wisdom. Do you see any repeated themes yet? It gets even more explicit in verses 5 to 8, the very heart of this particular section. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths, or make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I love this section of scripture, and as I read that, I could see some of you mouthing the words because you've memorized this particular section of scripture. If you need to get anything in your brain, these four verses, it would be a great spiritual exercise for you to memorize them this week and to meditate on them. The wisest person in the world doesn't trust his own opinion and wisdom. He trusts God. He relies upon God and his understanding. 
What that means is the wisest person in the room is the one who realizes that they're never the smartest person in the room. Because God is always there. And they trust him. You want the big idea of the heart of wisdom? The heart of wisdom trusts God more than it trusts ourselves. Trust God's understanding more than our own intuition. And the wise person doesn't just know the Lord and know what his commandments are, but trusts him and trusts them, meaning you bank your life on them. Not half-heartedly, but with all your heart. In contrast to trusting the Lord, we see, is leaning on your own understanding or being wise in your own eyes. Instead, we're called to acknowledge God, to trust the Lord, to fear the Lord, and to turn away from evil. And when we do that, it tells us it will go well for us. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. This is the heart of biblical wisdom, to know God, to trust him. And he will not only direct your paths so that you'll know what to do, he will continually refresh you. Wisdom lives in the in-between. There are thousands of decisions that you will make every day that require wisdom. Wisdom is the decisions where moral rules don't apply directly. For instance, we all know that we're not supposed to murder someone, right? I think we all know that. That's pretty clear in Scripture. We're not to lie. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to covet. But how should I respond to the obviously trolling comment on Facebook put there by my high school friend? Should I engage with a fool in his folly or not? Is that out loud? See, there's no verse that gives you a direct answer to a lot of these in-between choices of how and when and why you should respond. Or, for instance, whether you should buy a home in this neighborhood or in this neighborhood. Or what major you should choose in college. There's no verse that's going to tell you that. Or whether you buy a Mac or a PC. Or a Subaru or a Toyota. Or a Chevy, if you're American-made, I guess. I drive a Subaru. Or whether you and your significant other should get married or should break up. Or about whether or not our church should accept a huge old church building and move the entire basis of our operation downtown. There's no verse that's going to tell us that, right? And it's not that the Bible doesn't speak to these things. In in fact, it says a lot about the kind of person that you are to marry. Or how God has made you unique with different gifts and abilities and dreams. Or that we are to pursue justice and mercy and keep the main thing the main thing. But there isn't often a direct verse that answers these questions. We need to exercise wisdom. So what does it look like to trust the Lord in those decisions and lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him and then receive his guidance or direction for our path? It means that we give ourselves over continually to the contemplation and study of God's wisdom so that we know what he is like, his character, seen both in his commands and his revelation of wisdom. And we know the things that he's already spoken into and the things that he leaves for us to decide. It means that we don't just trust our own intuition, but ask God. We acknowledge him in all of our decisions saying, what would God want me to do here? 
What would God have me do with my money? What would God have for my life? What would God want me to say in response to this person? Now, how do we know that? Well, we acquaint ourselves. That's the heart of the wisdom literature, isn't it? Did you know that the book of Proverbs has 31 chapters in it? Did you know that most months of the year have how many days? 31. 31. One of the best ways for you to grow in wisdom is to just take one chapter of Proverbs a day for a couple months and read it. And then maybe of that, let one of those little pithy phrases about wisdom and the wise life be the thing that you think about during the day. Now, are you going to master life in a month? Absolutely not. But imagine doing that over and over again, how you begin to pile up and build on wisdom and life choices. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Oh man, if there was a mantra that our world needs to hear, be not wise in your own eyes. That means that not every one of your feelings is a good gauge for reality. It means that not every one of the things that you think about how life should be is actually correct. But rather, we should let God guide and direct our paths. Let's keep going. Verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your, all your, your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Part of living wisely and trusting God is to learn to trust what he has to say about money and stuff. Now, anybody getting uncomfortable? Pastor's talking about money again. Isn't it interesting that immediately after telling us to trust the Lord, to not rely on our own intuition and understanding, to not be wise in our own eyes, that he immediately jumps to how we should think differently about money. Why is that? Because money and finances and provision is one of the exact things that we are tempted to trust our own intuition about, our own wisdom on. And what does he say? Honor God with your money, be generous toward him first, and he will take care of you. Give generously to the Lord out of your first fruits. Now, the, the concept of first fruits is an agricultural metaphor. It means the first of the harvest that is brought in, the first that, that yield that you have, the first of your income or provision, so to speak, is to be given to the Lord. That's scary, isn't it? That is a massive act of faith. Why? Because there's no guarantee that there's not going to be a hailstorm tomorrow that wipes out the entire crop. There's no guarantee that the rest of it is going to come in. Or if I were to give generously to the Lord out of the first of my paycheck, how do I know that there's going to be enough left over to pay my bills, right? And so worldly wisdom would be like, let's just hold off on that. Let's pay all of our bills and spend what we need to spend. And if there's anything left over, then we'll give it to the Lord, right? But biblical wisdom here is actually the very opposite of that. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then what? Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now remember, the Proverbs are more principles than they are promises. But this is a repeated theme throughout Scripture. 
The, the father says to his son, if you want to have enough, you must give it away. If you want to be safe and secure, then put your trust in the Lord, not in your stuff. The Proverbs are filled with verses like these, counterintuitive wisdom where God challenges and encourages people to be generous and to trust in him, and he will provide for them. I can tell you through a life that this is true. It's scary, but it is true. If you find a generous and faithful giver, they will tell you that this is true. Now, let me tell you how the Bible can often be twisted and distorted with a beautiful principle like this. There's a thing called the prosperity gospel or prosperity preachers that love to focus in on verses just like this. And they would say, give to the Lord, sow a seed, be generous, give your first fruits, and then God will make you rich and prosperous and healthy. And generally giving to the Lord means give to me and my particular ministry, and then God will bless you for it. Now, in some ways it's complicated because the principles that they talk about are true, but it also is a massive distortion of the truth of the actual good news. Because what it does is it turns the end goal away from God himself and it uses God as a means to another end. It turns God into an idol giver, which is a happy life, a wealthy life, a, a healthy life, that if you do this, then God will give you what you really want the whole time realizing what, that what you really want is actually God himself, not money. But it distorts the gospel and it turns God into this idol giver, this, this vending machine dispenser of blessings. Almost like buying penny stocks and expecting them to explode. I caution you in that kind of thinking. If you think the greatest blessings of God are financial, you know very little of God. You know very little of God. Now, that's part of it. And I think we all at some point wrestle with, will we have enough? Will we be able to provide? Will we? And that's where I think this act of faith and this act of generosity is such a big deal that we give to the Lord First, students, I want to encourage you in this as well. Even though you're in school and you probably are spending more money than you're actually making, be generous toward the Lord in the income that you do make, and he will transform how you view your money and your stuff. And just think about it this way. If, if it's really hard to be faithful with a little bit, it doesn't get easier when there's a lot more, right? God trusts us with a little bit and wants us to be faithful and generous with that, and often then he entrusts us with much more. Now this could be an entire sermon on money. But the key to living wisely is to live generously and to trust our ultimate provision and security not in our bank account or our stuff, but in the Lord. Now, what does that mean as far as how much should I give or when should I give or what, how generous is too generous? Those, my friends, are the questions of wisdom that are not best answered in a sermon, but rather best answered in relationship with other faithful saints who can tell you and, and pave the way for you to walk. So, the key to wisdom is to trust God more than yourself, to love and obey and trust him from the heart, and it generally goes well with us, to be generous toward him and he will care for us. Let's look at the last two verses. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Don't be scared of the Lord's correction in your life. He loves you like a father and wants to teach you the way to truly live. 
As we were talking in our preaching meeting earlier this week, Pastor Mike threw out this question. How would it change the way you live if you knew that the Lord loves you like a father who both disciplines and delights in his children? And so I ask you, let me just read it one more time. I just want you to reflect on this question. How would it change the way that you live if you knew that the Lord loves you like a father, not an imperfect father, a good and perfect father, who both disciplines and delights in his children? Now, if you like to notice little literary things, I I do, a preacher after all, you'll notice that verses 1 and verse 10 start with the, the phrase, my son. My son, don't forget my teaching. My son, don't spurn the Lord's discipline. In many ways, it kind of provides a all-encompassing, hey, this is a section here. What it means is that not all the things that happen, not all the bad things or hard things that happen are bad. Sometimes it's the Lord's discipline that we might grow in wisdom. I love being a dad. I have five amazing children that I love so much and I'm unbelievably proud of. And one of, the, one of the tasks that the Lord has entrusted to me and their mother is to teach them about life, to help them grow in wisdom and skillful living. And sometimes that means that we explain to them what our expectations are. We teach them about manners and work ethic and kindness and dreaming dreams, how to apologize, how to ask for what they need, literally everything, Right? And that's what makes the parent job description like so long, is it teach them everything. But another part of our job, in addition to teaching, a different way of teaching is to discipline them when they don't actually meet the expectations so that they don't keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. Teach them in ways that their little minds can understand or their teenage minds can understand so that they don't make even more devastating mistakes when they're not in our home. That's what good parents do, isn't it? In many ways, God is our Father in heaven and does the same thing with his kids. He teaches us. He explains to us the way of wisdom. He tells us about how we live. And sometimes, like insolent three-year-olds, we think we know better, don't we? No, God, if you really understood the situation. And so what do you do with an obstinate three-year-old? You don't negotiate with terrorists. (laughs) You don't reason with them. You discipline them until they learn. And they are less miserable, and everybody else around them is less miserable, right? In the same way, this is why parenting so often teaches us about our relationship with God. Because sometimes, at some point, your two or three-year-old is going to have a tantrum. And you're going to connect the dots that the gap between you and their wisdom is infinitely more when you compare it between you and God, who designed the universe. And you're like, oh, I do that, don't I? I do that, don't I? And like a two- or a three-year-old, sometimes the Lord has to discipline us to get our attention so that we don't make even stupider mistakes later on. The Lord disciplines those he loves by sometimes allowing our own foolishness to fall back on our heads. Other times he disciplines us so that we don't make even more foolish mistakes. The key to living wisely and skillfully in this life is to fear the Lord 
to hold him in proper awe, to trust in his words and his understanding even more than our own. Whether that's the area of money or marriage or friendship or work or emotions or pretty much anything else under the sun, those who are wise trust the Lord. Leaning not on their own understanding, but in every way acknowledging him and letting him direct their path. Guys, you're going to face hundreds of decisions this week. Wouldn't it be helpful to know what God has to say about those things? How he's instructed you to live wisely? That, my friends, is the book of Proverbs. Can I share with you a secret as we close? Do you know where God's wisdom is most clearly seen in the New Testament? It's in the church. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 to 10, the Apostle Paul is writing to the believers in the city of Ephesus, reflecting on the the task that God has given him. And at the end, he, he just drops this little nugget about the wisdom of God. Let me read it for you. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body and both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people. He graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. So this idea that God is going to unite people once again in Jesus, that he is the savior not only for the Jewish people, but also for the Gentiles who weren't waiting for him, and now uniting them together in a new people, a new humanity that he is redeeming and restoring. God's purpose in all of this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Don't miss what it's saying there. It's saying when the, when the heavenly beings, when the angels and the demons want to know what God is doing, God's perfect wisdom, God's perfect knowledge applied rightly, when they want to know what God is up to, he points them to the church and they're like, oh, I get it now. Now for some of us, our church experience maybe doesn't line up with that particular way of thinking. I, I'll be honest, I... I was a pastor's kid. I grew up with a little bit of church baggage. Many of you did as well. And it wasn't until I was a pastor that that the full weight of this particular verse hit me like a ton of bricks. Because I used to look at the church and say, God, what in the world are you doing? This doesn't make any sense. And yet here, we're told that the perfect wisdom of God is seen by the angels and the demons in what he is doing in the church. So that when they look into that, albeit from a different vantage point, perspective than we currently have now, they're like, oh, it makes total sense. I see what you're doing, God. Isn't that encouraging? And what is that wisdom? The wisdom is that though God has given us the way to truly live, to live wisely, to live skillfully, none of us have done it. None of us have lived up to the wisdom of Proverbs, not even the guy who wrote it. So there needed to be another who would come, who would live perfectly, wisely, 
trusting the Lord with all of his heart and leaning not on his own understanding, but in all things acknowledging God, even when it didn't seem fun or right, not my my will, but your will be done. Ring any bells? And he allowed God to direct his path. The good news for us this morning is that while we are not perfectly wise, Jesus was. And he offers us his life as an act of grace and salvation, that if we would trust in him, we might not perish, but have eternal life. One of the promises of the Old Testament is that God would take his law and it would no longer be written on tablets of stone, but it would be written on human hearts. That he would pour out his spirit, his wisdom on his people that we might know his word and actually have the power to do it. Isn't that beautiful? Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it leads us to the path of wisdom. I pray, Jesus, that we would trust in you to be our wisdom and that we would trust in you and what you have to say. God, help us to not be wise in our own eyes, but to trust in your understanding. We acknowledge you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.